Aye, aye, Captain, you got it. And if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. Oh, no, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any Merlot! Okay, okay, <laughs> relax, Miles. Jesus, no Merlot. No Merlot. Although still a relatively small enterprise by global standards, English wine is taking off. In the past three decades, viticulture and winemaking in England has been transformed from the amateurish hobby of typically retired military men to a professional, well-funded, and increasingly well-respected enterprise. How and why this happened is documented in a new book by Henry Jeffries called Vines in a Cold Climate. In this interview, me and Gemma Greenwood speak to Henry about his book and also about broader attitudes towards wine drinking in England. I know I say this in every episode, but it really helps the show if you give it a share. And of course, if you can, please sign up to our Patreon for £3 a month. That's not a lot of money, but the more subscribers we get, the more shows we can make, and the better quality those shows will be. Currently, the budget for each episode is about £50, which really isn't much. So please sign up if you can. That's patreon.com forward slash full English. The Full English is produced by me, Lewis Bassett. Gemma Greenwood is my co-presenter on this episode. And Forrest DLG does the mixing and the sound design. Henry, welcome to the Full English podcast. Uh, Thanks for coming all the way to London. And thank you so much for bringing two bottles of fantastic wine. We've already popped one. Uh, I say popped, we've already uncorked one. Uh, what was the, what's the name of the one we're currently drinking? This is um, from Black Chalk, who are a Hampshire vineyard, but this is from Kent Grapes, and it's called It's a Rumour Chardonnay 2022. Is that quite normal to have a producer being in a different location to the... to the? We can come on to that, but yes, a lot of them buy grapes from other parts of the country, especially Kent and Essex, because they're the warmest, driest parts. Frowned upon? It's, no, no, it's totally not frowned upon at all. No, it's it's very, very, very normal. Um, I should also introduce Gemma, and uh, Gemma with a J, Hi. Uh, Greenwood, who, if you've been paying attention to the show, you will know from our Weatherspoons episode. Um, Gemma is helping out with the show, doing a bit of research and, and a bit co-presenting, just being a charming presence. You've got an interesting wine from your professional background, I know. Yeah, well, well We, we both somewhat. work in hospitality. Work in hospitality. I used to actually also work uh, for a brand studio that we worked on wine, wine brands predominantly. But as Henry was saying before, it might not help to uh, know about wine when you're designing for it, <laughs> with all the, the many terms and whatnot. Well, I mean, in this case, neither of us really know about wine. That's the, that's no, the I don't know anything about wine either. Well, you're Just the expert here. You've written do. the book. <laughs> um, well, definitely you know a bit more than we do. So you're going to be our guide and also our listener's guide to wine in general and wine in England. So Vines in a Cold Climate is your book, Henry. It's brilliant. Um, I really recommend it if you are interested in wine in general and especially if you're interested in wine grown in England. Um, And I think what you do really brilliantly is just you chart all of the key characters behind um, the rise, let's say, of English wine and you make it really readable uh, and enjoyable. So um, super, super great book. I wonder if we could start by you giving us some kind of a snapshot of the of of the production of wine in England and kind of like a bit of back history and how it's changed over time and also if you give me a picture of like where we're at now in terms of I don't know the scene the wine scene yes well it's a it's a really really interesting moment for 
English wine. We have an industry, something you could actually call an industry, with millions of bottles being made every year. Um, there's huge plantings going in the ground. There's lots of investment in the future of English wine. Um, you've got French companies, champagne houses, you know, planting in Kent and Hampshire. There's a Californian company that's just bought vineyards in Essex. So it's just, so at the moment, English wine is, is sort of on the verge of something quite enormous. But it's also new, right? 30 years ago, English wine was literally a joke. And then 100 years ago, it didn't really exist. I mean, you had vineyards in the Doomsday Book in the Middle Ages. But then a couple of things, uh, marriage of Henry II to Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152, she brought Bordeaux with her, you know, famous for its wine. So millions of gallons of Bordeaux would cross the channel. And, you know, why struggle to ripen grapes in Suffolk when you get cheap wine coming from France? That was the moment in which we lost our viticulture. That's, well, well and then the weather got colder as sure. well. okay. But there was, there was, there's a wonderful image by an English writer called Edward Hyams, and he talks about the nascent English wine industry being smothered by the Gallic mother, or something like that. So, But it was extraordinary, the amount of wine that came over. And then even when England lost the Hundred Years' War, so lost all the possessions in France, the wine kept on coming. And then after that, it came from Portugal or Spain. And if you think about where England is, or Britain is, um, seafaring nation, trading with around Europe and the rest of the world... Why would you try and struggle to go grow grapes in a marginal climate when you can just import it? So that's sort of what happened until, you know, with a few exceptions. Uh, Peeps talks about visiting a vineyard in Walthamstow. There was some quite nice wine being made in Surrey and South Wales. But there was no industry to speak of until the 1950s when you had these sort of retired colonel types who sort of, oh, you know, I've got a pension, I've got a blazer you know, let's, let's grow some grapes. And they, you know, they did it. You know, they grew grapes. I, I don't know what the wine was like. Probably, you know, by, by all accounts, not very good. Um, but they planted the seeds and it was these sort of amateurish men and women, you know, sort of, kind of upper middle class um, trying to make wine in England. But that sort of changed in the 70s and 80s when you began to have more professional people coming in. Sort of, it might be a farmer, it might be there's a, um, there's a family who, who grew apple, grow apples in Kent who just thought, why don't we try growing grapes? You know, so people who thought weren't doing it as a hobby, they were doing it to make money. So you had that in the 70s and 80s. You had pe pe people like Peter Hall in um, Sussex, you had Biddenden in Kent, you had Bolney in Sussex. Um, Camel Valley a bit later in 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 uh, Cornwall, and they were all, you know some of them were making apparently very nice wine, you know, um, quite low in alcohol, usually using sort of German varieties that ripened in England's sort of damp marginal climate, and that was all kind of ticking along nicely, kind of vineyard planting, sort of going up and down, selling to holiday makers, um, but it was very unambitious, you know, it was just to sell to the local market, and then you had two Americans. Sandy and Stuart Moss, who moved to England in the 80s, and they thought you could make champagne here or something very, very similar. You've got the right climate. You can grow Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, the three big champagne grapes. And people had tried to do it before, but what the Mosses brought was ambition. So they straight away they said, we're going to aim at champagne and money. 
most people didn't really have any money. The Mosses had a lot of money. And to make a champagne-style sparkling wine, you need a lot of money because the process to make the bubbles is expensive. Growing the grapes to a kind of level of ripeness so that you're, um, you're only ripening a small amount of very ripe grapes, that costs money. But also you need to keep the wine for 18 months to three years for it to develop those sort of champagne-type flavours. People in English wine, they didn't have the money to sit on, you know, sit on a whole harvest for, well, three harvests in a row and not sell it. But the Mosses did. Um, so they, the first, their first vintage, the first commercial vintage was 1992. It was released in 1997. And it caused an absolute sensation. Eventually, to begin with, people ignored it. And then... It was put up against Champagne by Jancis Robinson, probably the best-known wine writer in the country, against Champagne in a blind tasting, and all these French people thought it was Champagne. You know, they were like, this is a top Blanc de Blanc. Blanc de Blanc, Blanc, de Blanc means it's made from Chardonnay, all Chardonnay. And it was just, I mean, it's such an overused term, kind of game-changer, but it really was. It just, suddenly people thought, we could make really, really good wine in England. Because the thing that when you just started talking and we're sat in this room, we're both like mopping our brow, but all three of us are mopping our brow. It's, it's hot. Um, and and I'm, I'm kind of biting my tongue because like, I'm sure for lots of people listening to the show, they, they, the first thing they will think is that what changed was the climate and it made it possible. But actually in your book, a key variable seems that to be what you just um, spoke about there was the shift from amateurism to professionalism to, to there's a whole chapter in the book called the money men a bunch of people coming in big investors and that seemed to completely change the scene and I guess that you know with that a sense of ambition belief that this was possible I guess my question <laughs> that sounded like more of a statement than a question if there is a question here is like which is it which was the key variable or, or are they both important well, it was, this... it's both it's, de it's definitely both I think people started noticing in the late 80s that the weather was changing. There's a Peter Hall, who I mentioned before, referred to the 70s as the bloody awful weather years. Um, he just said it was really, really hard to ripen grapes. Um, late 80s, you started getting some warmer years. 90s, a little bit better. And then 2003, very, very warm year. Huge plantings after that. So there's no doubt that the climate, changing climate, has played a really big role. And people say that we have the same climate that... Champagne did in the 1970s. Um, but the human factor can't really be ignored either. So it's, so it's both. And I wanted to emphasise the human factor because I think, for me, people are more interesting than, 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 than climate, than, you know, temperature spikes and things like that. Um, but you can't, you can't really have one without the other in the, in the story. And, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it just now, and I'm looking at this... Uh... A bottle of um, fizzy, well, sparkling wine. Let's use the right terms. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm learning, you know. Uh, uh, we, we have a bottle of sparkling wine in front of us. You just mentioned that people um, decided that or discovered that um, it was possible to make champagne-like wines in England. Um, what is it about English, I don't know, soil, uh, English climate that lends itself to sparkling wine? And I guess the question here is, you know, what does it take to make a good sparkling wine? I understand it's high acidity, so that it means that, you know, you don't need a lot of sun? Is that well, you do. I mean, you need some sun. I mean, you, what you want is the grapes to be ripe, but not too ripe. So you want them to be slightly underripe, 
but without, we were talking earlier about green flavours. So you don't want those kind of biting into an unripe apple flavours. But at the same time, you don't want um, big ripe fruit because that means that the acidity's gone down and you really need acidity for the sparkling wine process. So do you want me to just explain a little bit yeah, about get, the sparkling get, wine get, uh, process? Yeah. Well, what you do is you get a wine of about 10 or 11%. So that's, and it would be... Probably it's quite hard to drink. So. 10, 11 percent alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And then, so you you know get collect the grapes, make mm-hmm. a wine in the normal in the normal way. Mm-hmm. You know, put some yeast in, or you can you know wait for the natural yeasts to work their magic. You would ferment it dry, um, and you have a wine of ten, maybe even less, sort of nine, ten, eleven percent. And then what you do is you put it in a very strong glass bottle. You add some sugar and some yeast. You cork it and then you leave it for 18 months, two years, three years, that kind of thing. And it starts to re-ferment in the bottle. The bubbles have got nowhere to go from the carbon dioxide, so they're absorbed into the wine. But something else happens as well. So the, the process, the interaction between the yeast, the sugar and the acid creates flavours, creates these wonderful kind of biscuity, nutty, sort of brioche type flavours that people love in sparkling wine. It also softens the acidity or there's some debate about whether it actually lowers the acidity or lowers the perception of the acidity when you're tasting it. But either way, it makes it seem less acidic. So you try it before the process and it's like, oh, try it after the process and it's bracing, but it's not unpleasant. You need you need a really long vocabulary to be uh, in, into wine, don't you? Sorry, this is a bit of a side point, but you know, like bracing, uh, green, all of these words. It's, it, it tastes like brioche. Like, oh, right, I love yeah. it. I love this uh, about wine. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because otherwise you end up just saying the same thing over and over again. Because yeah. like, talking writing about wine is a lot about just you know, it's like a thesaurus kind of job, isn't it? You mm. just kind of like, oh, I've said brioche. What's like brioche? Um, I don't know, butter toast. Yeah, butter toast. <laughs> you know, pan au raisin, all, the, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there's a pro- then what you've got is you've got this fizzy thing in a bottle, and then there's a process where you but it, it, it still has dead yeast cells in it. So there's a kind of a process where you remove the dead yeast cells, and then it's then it's often. Um, do you want me to? Is that a that? degorge or something? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So you have a, a riddling, yeah. which is where you t- slowly turn the bottle like that, so all the um, so upside down. So yes, yeah, so upside and down. And he's gesturing. We yeah, so, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Henry gestures. Um, and then all the yeast collects at the bottom, and then they freeze the neck of the bottle, open it, and then the frozen bit of yeast flies out the top. Mm-hmm. You top it up with a bit of wine and often a sugar solution, but which is called dosage, which sweetens it, which again tempers the acidity. And then you cork it, and then you normally leave it for three months, six months, a year, just for all those flavours to, to integrate. Mm-hmm. And then you have a bottle of of sparkling wine. And in Champagne, obviously, this is all mechanised, and you have these very, very well-funded Champagne houses who have the depth in finances to sit on millions of bottles while they develop those flavours that everyone loves. But you need a hell of a lot of money to start one of those companies because you need to make a lot of wine, use a process that's quite labour-intensive, and then sit on it for three years. It's, it's a bit like whiskey or something like that. It, you, need, you need a lot of investment before you can start selling stuff. 
I think there's a huge conversation that we're going to come on to about class and wine. Like, we can yeah, feel it happening, can't we? <laughs> Anyone listening to the show knows we're going to come on to that. But I don't know. Do you want to ask a question? Yeah, I want to ask, do we know when, um, when I suppose here in the UK especially, we got our appetite for wine and especially sparkling? Was it at that point uh, when they brought everything over from France? Or if it kind of didn't exist before, how did we get such an appetite for it? So were you thinking about like the 12th century? Way back. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, back well, I think it, it, it's, it's hard to know because before that time you had, you know, the Dark Ages. So you don't really know what people were drinking. But I think, you know, obviously during Roman times, lots of wine was coming over. Then you have sort of chaotic people invading and stuff. Were they drinking wine? Probably not. But then the monasteries would probably have been drinking wine and even even making wine. Um what you know, so so then the Normans invaded 1066, and they were from you know they were from a non um, grape growing part of France, but part of France nonetheless. So I think the upper classes would have almost certainly have drunk wine. Um, so it probably came over in some sense with the Normans, but I think it quite quickly percolated down to sort of middle classes, that kind of thing when Bordeaux was part of England because something like, such a huge amount was imported that it can't have just been, you know, the toffs drinking it. It must have been drunk by, you know, kind of churchmen and merchants and squires and things like that. I doubt the peasants were drinking it, though. But I'm kind of wondering at what point, uh, you know, we went from just drinking it and kind of regaling in it, uh, if that's the right word, <laughs> to actually yeah, taking an interest in it and when we became so interested in all these minute details about it. Mm. Gosh, I don't really know. Um, well, you know, sort of, you know, you know, Pepys was writing about wine and he had a wine cellar sort of in the 17th century. I think you know, wine writing as such probably started in the kind of 18th, 19th century. You know, you talk a lot, of, you talk about kind of provenance and people were interested in where it came from and stuff. And I think they were to, to, to some extent... But also it was quite, you know, your Bordeaux, you'd buy from a, from a merchant and he'd have stuck some port in it and your kind of port would have probably had some elderberries stuck in it. So it was sort of the our kind of idea of wine being this, the French word terroir coming from this specific place and being unadulterated and, you know, made by this person here would have been, I don't think it would have meant very much to a 18th century wine drinker who would have just been like, I bought this from my merchant and it's lovely. You know, and it's, you know, it's really strong um, and it tastes great. Um, and I, I, think, I think the kind of the connoisseurship in the modern sense of sort of fetishizing place is, is a very recent. Um, and what does it take to make a good one? Well, do you know, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me this because it's not really my... I was thinking a lot about this in the garden while I was, while I was drinking in the garden. Um... I mean, on a sort of very basic level, you want very ripe grapes, but not too ripe. You want a long-growing season, so you want the flavours in the grapes to develop slowly. So, if you know, if you plant the wrong grape, if you, if you plant sort of Merlot or something, which is an early ripening grape, in the hottest part of the south of France, it'll develop a huge amount of sugar very, very quickly, but not an awful lot of nice flavours. So, you want the grapes to be ripe, but to have ripened slowly, which is why people get very excited about... We were talking earlier about Riesling from Germany, and they grow it on these slopes where it, it starts ripening in May and they harvest it in November or something like that. So you get these 
very complex flavours developing, which is why people get excited about English wine and particularly English sparkling wine, because potentially, because you've got that long growing season, you've got the flavours developing very slowly, you can get extremely interesting things going on. Um, so if you think about, you know, sort of like an apple, you get apples that have lots going on, or you have ones like a sort of pink lady, which just tastes sweet. You know, it's a, great uh, name, though. Yeah, no, it's a great <laughs> name. My daughter loves the pink lady. But so, so you, you need fruit like that, and then you need to ferment it um, in a sort of clean manner, but then sort of perhaps not too clean, because if you do it all under very, very sterile conditions using a cultured yeast, perhaps you're not going to get so many interesting flavours as you are if you perhaps let some oxygen get to it. Or So sometimes you want a bit of controlled decay, and we can come on to natural wines at some point, which are kind of wines which are made perhaps without that level of, um, not level of cleanliness, but that level of sort of scientific scrutiny. So what actually makes a good wine is really hard to say because it is a lot in the eyes of, of the beholder. So, so some people, it might be that ultra-clean um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, a big fresh flavours. Or for other people, it might be like some funky natural Beaujolais, which, you know, tastes a little bit wild and stuff. So it's sort of, it's a lot in the eyes, in the, in the palate of, of, of who's consuming it. But there's, there's two sides to this process, right? There's the growing of the grapes... And there's the craft in producing the wine. And I think that what your kind of book outlines is like Britain was not good at either of those things until really the 90s, 80s maybe. 100%, yeah. I think, I think the, the, the grape growing, generally the grapes weren't ripe. Right. And the winemaking was, you know, at times absolutely shocking. And because you start the book by saying, here I am at a, um, I think it's a promotion for a new vineyard that's being opened. Unfortunately, I can't remember the name. Um, Domain Evremont in, uh, in Kent. And it's a miserable day. And you have this sense that maybe English wine is a bit shit, really, uh, if I can <laughs> use the word. And then, but then you conclude the book by saying, uh, reflecting, it's a very reflexive chapter, you're saying, um, are these wines actually good? Or are they just good for England, is the phrase that you use, I think. Um, and I mean, what would you say? Are they, you know, you must have drank a lot of wine in your time. Are they actually good? Do they, do they stand up to the international competition? I think the sparkling wines do, you know, 100%. I think, I think England, especially at sort of I know this seems like a lot of money but it's not compared with champagne for sort of 30 to 50 pounds I think English sparkling wines can compete with the best of the rest of the world which is basically champagne the still wines are much more work in progress and you're always going to pay, pay more for them the yields are very low you don't get many grapes per acre compared with say the south of France or you know Australia or somewhere like that um and Labour costs are very high. They cost a lot to make. And the grapes are... It's still hard to ripen a grape above that level to make sparkling wine. So you need it to be that little bit riper just to lower the acidity. And that's really, really hard to do. Which is why we've got this black chalk wine from Hampshire. But they're, they're still wine. They bought the grapes from Kent because it's warmer. Um, but at, the, at their best, I'd say that like an English Chardonnay can compete with a similar, similarly priced Chardonnay from um, from France or from New Zealand. Should we have a go on the sparkling? Should we have a go? Yeah, let's, let's give it a go. Well, while you're opening it, um, there's an issue, isn't there? Because what is English sparkling wine called? Because, I mean, we know Prosecco. There's no domain, is there? They've oh, not yeah. got a protected... 
Well, they, they do, but, is, it, but, it's, but it's just English sparkling wine. It's just it's English, and there are sort of rules. And that's stuff. just not a very sexy name, is it, English it's sparkling not, wine? It's not very catchy. So it's funny we call it champagne. English champagne. We could just like, oh, come on. But we're not allowed we to do to that. We need to carve out our own thing. We need to carve out our own thing. Very good. <laughs> we're off to Spain now. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, no, it's, it's a difficult one. No, no, one's, no one's come up with a good, a good answer to that problem. Okay, here we go. Oh, we. Here we go. <laughs> Pass that around. So this is Everflight, which um, sounds like a make of squash racket, doesn't it? Um, but it's a, re- a new producer or new-ish producer from Hampshire, or is it Hampshire? No, Sussex, who are I just think are really, really good. And we were talking about kind of clean versus not so clean. And I think Everflight walk a kind of line where they're not they're not natural wine by any stretch of the imagination, but they allow more uh, wilder flavours mm-hmm. in their wine. It's a bit funky. It's a little bit... Well, actually, I haven't tried this one, but they do a, a rosé that is actually quite funky, but in a really, really lovely way. So I'm... Henry, we, we said at the outset that neither Gemma nor I are anything close to experts. I mean, you, if you're not an expert by your own admission, then we're absolute amateurs. Um, where do you start? What are we looking for? If it, you know, it just like, imagine you're talking to someone who's never drank wine before. How 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 should we be experiencing this? What do we? So you're you're smelling it now. What yeah. are you looking for with it? And, just and, you know, think about what it smells of. You know, you 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 smell it, and it's there's sort of fruity flavors, but there's also other sort of flavors, um, which are the flavors of. To me, it smells quite yeasty. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, there's a marmite smell mm. to it, which you get from that's the process of making the bubbles. Mm. The, fer- the bottle fermentation process gives you those yeasty, marmitey notes. Are we getting brioche here? German, I haven't tasted it yet. <laughs> okay, the brioche is on the palate. You get, you're getting toast. But you're a chef, so maybe it's still yeah. a little bit more. There's definitely some toasty notes. Do you know, I'm not, I'm not actually very good at this. You get someone like Oz Clark, and he'll be like, it's a brioche from this bakery. On a Thursday in <laughs> March, you know, but, um, and then, so, you know, you think, and if you're getting the, the, you're getting kind of fresh fruit, you're getting kind of yeasty, sort of toasty notes, you're th- you think, this is, is a good quality sparkling wine. It's, mm-hmm. it, the, the, the yeasty notes mean it's mature, so you, it's been aged for some time to develop those notes. Okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to put it in my mouth now. Okay. Wow. It's less um, sweet than I was expecting. Yeah, it's, I think this is. It probably has a very small dosage, very small amount of sugar mm. added post um, disgorgement. You know, with the bit where you take the the the, uh, the yeast out. Um, nice small bubbles, which is another sign of maturity. Um, it's really smooth. Very very smooth. The acidity is under control, so you're not. It doesn't mm. hurt your teeth. You still get English sparkling wines that are like the, the dentist's best friends. You know, they're <laughs> kind of like you can feel them taking the, the enamel off your teeth. This is all kind of under control. Mm. Nice sort of appley fruit. It's probably a bit too cold at the moment, which is mad because we're in the hottest room ever. Sweating away. It's very enjoyable <laughs> mm. though. And I think it'll open up with time, but it's very, it's very well-rounded, very well put together, harmonious. I think is to, to choose another wine term. <laughs> I'm going to stick to the word delicious. I like yeah. it. Yeah, big fan. What do you say it was called? So again? this is Everflight, non-vintage. So it's a blend of years from Sussex. Thanks, Everflight. Um, we'll, you know what? I'll put a link to to these wines that we're drinking in the show notes. Obviously, I'll put a link to your book. Um, you know. I, I sit here thinking, uh, God, I'm, I, there's there's something about tasting wine that I even and, and and even the experience of being served wine at a restaurant that is somehow still a bit foreign to me and a bit like 
weird for me. And it's not that my parents don't drink wine, but they're not like wine people, you know? They don't have a, necessarily a lot to say about it. But certainly, you know, my, my dad was much more into it. Both my parents were much more into drinking beer. And what I'm leading up to here is, is basically like, I, I feel that like there is an attitude towards wine in this country that it still feels that the experience of wine is something that's a little bit elitist, a little bit posh. I mean, is that, would you, would you go along with that? Is, is that, and, and, and to what extent do you think, or, or why do you think that might be the case? I think nowadays, I mean, I think there's a division between drinking wine and being interested in wine. So I think drinking wine is now very, very normal. I think, I'm not sure what the stats are, but I think it, it is like the best-selling alcoholic drink in the country. And I think most people are quite happy going to the supermarket, buying wine, getting their Chilean Merlot or you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and it's just another drink now. I think it's, it, but being interested in wine, that's a whole different game. You know, that sort of, that suddenly brings back kind of, you know, Alan Partridge ordering Blue Nun with, with, with the uh, director general of the BBC. You know, it produces all these kind of anxiety, class anxieties and stuff, which date back to a time when wine wasn't drunk by most people. And, and, and until, I suppose, the 60s and 70s or 80s, really, wine was for the middle classes. Um, and most people drank, well, even, not, not even for the middle classes, like my grandparents drank spirits. You know, they drank um, my, a whiskey and soda. That was, that was their drink. And then my parents' generation, sort of middle class, born in the 40s, you know, kind of came of age in the 60s. Wine was France. You know, it was Elizabeth David and Italy. And, you know, it was, it was exciting. It was sort of sexy. Um, but it was also, uh, you know, had quite a lot of status as well. And I think that began to change in the 80s when you started getting wine from Australia and Chile and Argentina and stuff, which was very, very easy to understand. You know, Lindemann's Chardonnay, um, something or other Malbec. You know, it was, it was easy to pronounce, easy to say, um, and easy to order. So, and cheaper? No, 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 not, not, not necessarily cheaper. Um, you know, I think your bottle of kind of cheap Bergerac or, you know, longer dock wine would have probably been cheaper. Um, but it was it was classless in a way that, say, something like Blue Nun. Well, actually, the, the, the thing is that people are always very rude about things like Blue Nun, and, which is a Liebfraumelsch from Germany. But that was quite, quite cool in the 60s, you know, or, or Matthias Rosé. That's what, which is a sparkling rosé from So you Portugal. have your angel delight with your Blue Nun. And yeah, you, yeah, but that was... That was just sort of normal. That wasn't... And then as people moved away from that, as people kind of started discovering Bordeaux or, you know, Southern French wine and then New World wines, you then laugh at the sort of... the stuff that your parents drank or the stuff that people who haven't caught up with fashion are drinking. And I think nowadays wine is... You know, it's just, you know, you go to a pub and people... A lot of people are drinking wine. Um... I mean, I don't, I don't drink wine in the pub. I always drink beer. But, but you can get wine in the pub and, you know, you'll see people sharing a bottle of Pinot Grigio or Rosé or something in the pub and they're not, you know, they're not wearing monocles or anything. <laughs> I, <laughs> just... I feel like that's... Like, it feels like there's a second wave of still a certain kind of elitism. Um, but, I mean, one of the things that I was having a look at and that I was writing down was the category of natural wine and how that in particular... Or, I mean, there's certain wines that are kind of fashionable for the young and metropolitan person. So Riesling has become something. Pickpool, pretty sure all of my friends are ordering that, you know, feeling fancy, the bottle's a bit longer, uh, a bit cooler. Um, 
And yeah, natural wines in particular, I mean, they can be a little, a lot more rogue in their kind of packaging as well. And maybe it peels and feels accessible, but still to a lot of other people, it maybe isn't accessible. So it's still elitist in a way. It's still kind of cut off and out of reach. Um, would you say that you've seen that as well? Yeah, I mean, I always think of natural wines as a bit like when I used to go to kind of Sister Ray, it's a record shop on Berwick Street. It, it doesn't exist anymore. And it would just be full of people kind of like saying names of bands and, you know, yeah, trying, trying, to, trying to be really, really cool. And I was like, wanted to go in there and like, have you got the new Simply Red LP or something <laughs> like that? And I thought that is kind of what natural wines are. They're sort of moving the goalposts for the cognoscenti, for the people who, who get it. And if you get it, then you can be like, I get it. And if you don't get it, then you're the Simply Red fan with your Argentine Malbec. The flip side of that, though, is it is kind of bringing wine to a bunch of people who I think otherwise wouldn't really drink it. Like, let's just say, quote unquote, like hipsters or whatever, who, I don't know, maybe aren't really interested in in the classic vineyards and, uh, you know, even and also the kind of the Australian and Chilean and New Zealand wines that you just mentioned. And this is their, this is their kind of coming of age with wine, I suppose. So there's a kind of democratization process happening there to some extent. Yeah, I don't know about democratization because I think it is about it, it with the hipster thing. It's not really about democratization. It's about going for something obscure and you know getting the right label, getting the right. I mean, I used to live in um, in Shoreditch in about two thousand and two, and what was really funny is that no one had any interest in food or drink at all. It was all about like, the right jeans, the right sunglasses, the right band that you saw at the old blue last on Saturday night. But people had no interest at all in what lager they were drinking. And that kind of began to change probably late noughties. Um, and the sort of the hipsters, so suddenly it was food, it was drink, and it was less about sort of sunglasses and stuff. But I think it's the same attitude and i'm not saying it's not it's not good because you do it you do end up with lots something that's a bit different you end up with bars selling really interesting food and drink but i don't think democratization is quite the right word because i think it's almost the opposite it's a sort of new new elitism but i don't think that's a bad thing because it's bringing something that wasn't there before rather than just you know pinot grigio malbec the, you know the, the simply red wines I'll go along that, that that makes sense the one thing I did want to pick you up on though um, and we spoke a little bit about this over uh, uh, Twitter um, which was that in your book the kinds of people that get into wine that end up investing in wine the money men um, are like of that group there's like there's billionaires are quite overrepresented let's say city people that used to work in the city ex-CEOs is there something peculiar about wine? Or is that just the nature of investment in any kind of business? But I just feel like, is there something kind of peculiar about wine that people who are rich tend to want to do, you know, that with their lives? They want to do that with their retirements. You know, there's, there's an allure for the rich. It was one of the reasons why I was really reluctant to do the book in the first place is I was, it was just because of that. I thought that, that, that it was going to be very kind of branded gilet, golf umbrella, you know, some bloke called Dominic made a packet in the city, planted some vines in Hampshire. And I thought the story was going to get really repetitive because it was just going to be those kinds of people. And they are really overrepresentative. I think owning a vineyard is very, very prestigious. I think a few years ago, these people would have bought a vineyard in Tuscany or um, California or somewhere like that. And if you go to California or Tuscany or Bordeaux or somewhere, there are these sort of people. And there always have been these sort of people. Bordeaux was planted 
largely in the 18th century by rich lawyers from, from Paris and Bordeaux who had some money, built a huge chateau. You know, so I think it's, it's a sort of eternal thing of people who've made money in one business wanting to show off their wealth. Um, and the vineyard is a great place to do it. You know, and then you can show off your wine that you, that you make. And I think that's a huge part of the industry. And to be honest, I mean, in some ways, that's not a bad thing because as we've covered already, it's incredibly expensive to make sparkling wine. So you kind of, you're going to have these people. But it would be a very boring story if it was just those people. And thankfully, there's more, you know, there are smaller producers. There's people who have done a wine course, studied for a few years, got a lock up in Battersea, don't own any vineyards, buying grapes from Essex and Kent. Um, there's a producer near me who's a single mother who just farms a few hectares, sells the grapes to one of the big producers, makes a little wine herself. Um, so if it was just the city boys, not that they aren't useful, it would have been a really boring book. So I'm pleased that there's a bit more, a bit more variety. Yeah, I was being a bit provocative there because that certainly comes across in your book. So yeah. I kind of wanted to, yeah, get you to put. But it's it a huge, words, it's a but... huge part of the story, and I yeah. don't think it's one that's you know that you you want you want to gloss over. Absolutely. So on the production side, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but the guys with the money are there, and there still is this allure, and that's because I think you know what we're talking about now, like wine does have this kind of cultural cachet. And, and these things, you know, we could say the same about coffee or even now beer or anything, really, uh, when it comes to food. Uh, even like a humble thing like pizza, which when it was developed in Naples was basically frowned upon by anyone who wasn't from Naples, you know. Um, and, and it's to say that, yeah, these things cut both ways because they can be a sign of people's distinction and class. But they are also, in their own right, incredibly enjoyable, you know. I did wonder that if I could ask about what you think about... Um so how else the wine industry might appeal to a broader drinker? So you already spoke about how previously, you know, it was obviously kind of simplifying it in a way. Uh, we've talked about how maybe to a younger or kind of hipster drinker, it's, you know, the packaging of it is the natural wine. Do you see a way for it to become more accessible? Do you think English wine, perhaps, because it's not reached a certain level yet, that might be a way in? Yeah, I, don't, I, I think it's very hard to say because the English wine industry is so tiny. You know, we're talking about it now, we're trying some wine, but it is minuscule by um, global standards. And it's not like someone like, you know, you have a whiskey company like Diageo and they're always thinking like, you know, who's going to be our drinker in five years, ten years? How do we get to these people? I think with English wine, it's really the wrong question because it's so tiny that there aren't really the resources to even think about, you know, you know that kind of level of... Um, long-term thinking you obviously want people to be drinking wine in future um but how do you do that how do you make sure that and then how do you make sure that um wine appeals to lots of people i think that's a broad question for the wine industry i don't think it's really one specifically for the english wine industry because english wine industry is so tiny that if people are drinking wine then that's great you know so so english people can english producers can sell to those to people um, but I also think that the English wine is perhaps generally not brilliant at marketing. I suppose if you think about the kind of joie de vivre that champagne producers use to market their product, you think of those wonderful old Art Nouveau um, adverts from the 19th century or just the way that Champagne doesn't market itself as a wine. It's like a whole kind of sort of lifestyle and it has all these associations. 
English wine hasn't really even begun to to attempt that. Well, it has it has begun to attempt it, yeah, but it's in a very kind of boring sort of luxury lifestyle, you know. And you you see what their Instagram Instagram um, output's like. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't have the imagination or the flair. But I think that might again be a matter of resources. You know, the English wine industry is so tiny. Mm. Um, Something quite put, sweet about that. Yeah. <laughs> Can you put a figure on it? Like, I, I remember from your book, there's something like the amount of uh, sparkling wine produced in England is something equivalent to the amount that's drank in one day or something. Yeah, it was some, I, I can't remember what it was. It, I, I'll have to find, find the stats at the end of the book, but it's sort of t- 10, sort of 18 million bottles or something where they produce 300 million in champagne or 500 million in Prosecco. So at the moment, you talk to English sparkling wine producers and they're like, well, if people are drinking champagne then they should be drinking English sparkling wine. And that's, you know, it, it's not particularly imaginative, but it's really not a bad way to go. And it's something that we, that we were talking about on, on Twitter is that champagne's a, a funny sort of wine because it's much more expensive than any other kind of wine, but people are quite happy to spend £40 on a bottle of Verve Clicquot to celebrate something, or if they've got people coming over in a way that they wouldn't with, you know, a, a bottle of Chablis or a bottle of, of English Chardonnay. So I think most English wine producers are like, if we can get some of that market. Do you think at some point English wine or English sparkling wine will be a thing of itself? Not like to we'll have, have the, the comparison? Same, like, status. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I think, it's, I think it'll be really hard. Um, but I think as long as champagne has that status and English wine looks and tastes a bit like champagne... Um, I, I think it really comes from people. People adopted prosecco pretty quickly. Like that people happened quite love recently. A prosecco, <laughs> and, but that's also because it's incredibly cheap. Prosecco, yeah, prosecco is, is you know, it's it's like it's it's sparkling, it's sweet, it's fun, it's cheap. You know, it, it, it's a very very different thing. Mm. Um, but I think it will come from um, hospitality. I think if, if, if there's any group that can do it, it's not the producers themselves. It'll be bars and restaurants and stuff. So I live in Kent and most sort of smarter pubs will do Gusborne or something by the glass, either instead of or alongside champagne. And most people, uh, you know, seem to be quite happy to drink that and pay for it. Um, Gusborne's not cheap. So I think that's probably the way to do it. Yeah, I work at a pretty chic uh, restaurant in South London that I believe sells Westwell, which is in Kent. Oh, yeah, yeah, very nice producer. Rosé kind of bottle is delicious. Yeah, I can see how that would happen. It's going to filter out, but I suppose there's a bit of a supply issue. Like you mentioned in the book, we might be on the cusp of a big glut of wine uh, production in in, in England, which will then bring down the price, which will then maybe create its own demand. I mean, that that, that would be... Good in some ways. It'll be hard for some producers. I think there will be some casualties, but I think there being more grapes will generally be a good thing because it'll lower prices. And it'll also mean that the small producers will, who buy in grapes will be able to um, get access to better fruit and sell it cheaper. So I think it'll be good for the, for the, for the customers and hopefully, you know, in the long term, good for everyone. But do you think that at least maybe on a broader scale... Um, I mean, I, I thought what was interesting is, obviously, as Lewis has covered before, you know, in England uh, and in Britain, people have a pretty rubbish view of, you know, English produce and English production. And it is changing, but the general view is, you know, England doesn't do good food and drink. Do you think that English wine and English wine production can kind of change that opinion? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, d- definitely. I mean, I, I think England's definitely getting better at selling itself as a, perhaps not abroad, but selling itself to its own people as a sort of food and drink thing. I think people are definitely, you know, where, where I live in Kent, people seem quite kind of, kind of proud of their local produce and keen to kind of buy fish and, you know, locally grown things. And I think English wine hasn't even begun to tap into that. It hasn't even really started. And I think there's a kind of local pride that breweries are really good at tapping into and gin producers are brilliant at tapping into. You know, you think you go to pubs and they have like eight different kinds of local gin. And I mean, it's like, do you really need eight different kinds of gin? And wine producers aren't very good at that. They're not very good at like getting down to their local pub and saying, you know, you're stocking this. You should be stocking this as well. Um, Perhaps they do, and they just get you know get shown the door. But um, I think that's an area where English wine could be much better is, is is tapping into that kind of local pride that we have for our beers and gins and stuff. But do it for wine. Obviously, that only really works in Southern England. But mm. I get the sense from your book and from what you just said that we're um, on the cusp of a of a kind of boom in English wine. Um, We'll see if I'm, you know, eating my words later on. But if that's the case, your book is going to be an absolute landmark uh, in that development. So again, big recommendation, Vines in the Cold Climate. My final uh, question is, if you were to recommend some English wine to listeners, um, maybe you could uh, tell me which producers uh, you think are ones to watch. And second, a bottle or two, actually two bottles, one in a lower price bracket and one in a slightly higher price bracket. I will go for, well, we mentioned uh, Westwell already, which is probably the nearest producer to me in Kent. Um, It's run by an ex-music industry chap called Adrian Pike. He makes some really good wines. He makes a really good sparkling wine, but he also grows a grape called Ortega, which is a Germanic cross, which is the kind of grape that used to be planted before the big sort of champagne grape boom. And he makes this lovely kind of almost Pickpool, Muscadet, Alberino type white from it, which you sell, which 2022 vintage is delicious. Sell a door, 15, 16 pounds, which is about as cheap as you're going to get for a really good English wine. Um, and I think it's lovely. And it's just what you want to have with oysters or shellfish or, or that kind of stuff. Brilliant. Slightly higher price wine. Um, very I'm, special occasion. You're very really, special. Someone you want to impress. There's a there's a great producer in Dorset called Langham, uh, whose wines I buy a lot of. Um, run the winemakers a chap called Tommy Grimshaw, and we're talking about like clean and not so clean winemaking. Not that his winemaking is dirty, but he allows um, wild yeasts to make flavours. And I don't know if it's the wild yeast because I'm not an expert on on winemaking, but his sparkling wines especially he does a blanc de blanc which means it's all chardonnay just has these big flavors and doesn't really taste you know this is very kind of clean and elegant and sort of classic his wines have sort of odd flavors like you might get a bit of a whiff of sherry or a bit of like a bit of cognac or something you'll just be like wow you know and he ages the um the wine before it's bottled in oak barrels as well and you just get Big flavours, they're not like anything else. I remember I put on a wine tasting recently and everyone just tried his Blanc de Blanc and just said, I've never had a sparkling wine like this before, and in, in a good way. So, yeah, uh, Langham, I'd say. 
exciting stuff. Henry Jeffries, thank you so much for uh, bringing wine and for speaking to us today. Um, and Gemma, thanks so much for joining me as well. Thank um, you. And I could listen, honestly, Henry, I could listen all day. I feel like if that's going to make things accessible, read the book. All right, well, thank you so much. <laughs> I, I, I hope I kind of was coherent. I feel like I kind of waffled on a bit. No, it was, it was, it was brilliant. Thank you so much. Cheers, everyone, and we'll leave it there.